another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, or if this is your first time with us, uh, welcome to your first episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where hopefully uh, theology doesn't suck. <laughs> I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, what is going on, man? Oh, hey, Josh. Sorry, I didn't see there. I was too busy listening to uh, to the new Kanye album um, <laughs> wow. on another set of headphones over here uh, and uh, off a different computer. So, oh, really? hey, so you're bumping that new Kanye West, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. I mean, it, I like to me, it. It's like the perfect, you know, like title for what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but at the same time, like it was one of those things that I just listened to it. And I, you know, if you're like a hip hop person, which I, I used to be a long time ago, uh, it's like a lot. It's actually really great. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, that's true. I think it, it's interesting to see the response, how people have responded to it. People are like, oh, let's be honest, this album sucks. You just like it because he says Jesus or like people are saying, oh, man, Kanye West, like it's a he's a faker. You know, it, it doesn't count. But I think if anything, man, maybe perhaps we should just like be excited that Jesus, the name of Jesus and Jesus is king is getting propagated and yep. just pray for Kanye. I don't, is that a hashtag? <laughs> yeah, I think it actually might be already, but it's, it's funny to me because people are, you know, there's, there's memes out there about this, but it's actually like really true. Like people are willing to like, accept that their friend, you know, found Jesus at Bible camp over the summer without them there, like seeing it, but they're not willing to accept that Kanye could have accepted Jesus. They're like, <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. We'll see, you know? Right. right. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. But it's it's just interesting to me, like sort of like you said, best case scenario, the the, the name the, or the the phrase Jesus is King is being spoken like you know probably like billions of times over the last couple of days, which is which is pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's pretty cool. And his song um, called Hands On is a hard mm-hmm. hitter lyrically. Um, yeah. So I think people should go check out that song. At least Josh, that just, one. Just make sure you haven't only halfway read Ephesians. Oh, yeah. Got it. That's a good <laughs> good reference to the song there. Way to go, Marty. That's right. All right. Show that you've been listening to it maybe once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, man. Well, you referenced our, our topic for today a little bit, and I think it actually is very fitting. Uh, Kanye's album, Jesus is King. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, a new book that came out recently. But first, we should introduce the man behind the book who is uh, Dr. Matthew Bates. How's it going? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And, you know, my my only comment on this whole Kanye West uh, thing is uh, I'm not sure what exactly a Kanye is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't even know. I, 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 I'm so clueless that I hadn't even heard of this guy. I think I'd sort of heard of him uh, until about a year ago when somebody asked me my opinion about Kanye. And I was like, I don't I don't know what a Kanye is. Uh, and so then I figured out, oh, yeah, I guess he's like some sort of hip hop artist. But, um, yeah, that's, that's 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 not the kinds of to, uh, kind of tunes I dig. Uh, okay. So uh, I'm not going to hip hop. It. Yeah, what 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 kind of <laughs> tunes do you dig? Uh probably like indie folk nice. sort of stuff. Okay. Um yeah. So if I was going to listen to a Christian artist, uh, Andrew Peterson would be more in my okay. uh, in my uh, wheelhouse. So nice. I don't know if you know Andrew Peterson, but uh, he's awesome. Yeah. Do you, do you uh do you like uh Bob Dylan at all? A lot of biblical scholars seem to like Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> 
no. <laughs> right on. I, right I, on. I mean, I like his music writing, but I, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp that complains he can't sing. Ah, um, and there, uh, there are some people who think that's evil to even suggest. <laughs> but, uh, but I like some of his songs actually that are remade. I find a lot better, um, which is, you know, of course he was, he was a genius songwriter. So sure. yes, I mean, I do appreciate him as, as a musical contributor, but I don't listen to a lot of Dylan directly. Okay. If you, sweet. if you like Andrew Peterson, and sort of like that acoustic guitar, folky kind of sound. There's a guy named Eddie Berman. Um, and uh, I, the, the warning I'll give is it's not Christian. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't sing about like, you know, crazy stuff like that or anything. But, it, you know, he does, he does swear in his, in his lyrics on occasion. So for some people, that's not a thing. Like they're, they're, they're not okay with that. Um, but he he's really it's really like it's interesting. It's worth it's worth at least listening to a couple of his songs right. to check them out. All right, Eddie Byrne. Well, you guys can check out Gregory Allen Isakov, who nice. is a secular artist, one of my favorites, too. Perfect. Nice. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Well, quick, random, like housekeeping question. Uh, what how would you like to be referred to as Matthew, Matt, Dr. Bates? Just just Matt. Just yeah. Matt. Perfect. Or, All you right. know, or you just got to go on full on. You got to go, you know, Dr. Matthew Bates, Ph.D., sir. Um, no, I just Le- Leah, put them all together. <laughs> Mr. Dr. Professor Matthew Bates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, just Matt. Matt's, Matt. Matt's uh, Matt's you, I consider you guys friends. We'll, we'll go. We'll go with Matt. Oh, so nice. Perfect. Thank we'll you. go with Matt. I'll I'll be Dr. Patterson from here on out. <laughs> I don't have a doctorate, so we're not. Yeah, no way. Um, anyway, can you? So, Matt, for our listeners, just uh, for those of uh, who might not have encountered your work before, can you just tell us a little bit about you? Like, who are you? Uh, what do you do? Like, what's your kind of your upbringing and faith background? That kind of stuff. But okay. hold on, Josh. Before Matt answers, you have to ask our question. Oh, you want to do that first? Okay, we'll do that first. Yeah. We'll come back to your bio question. Because uh, this one, this one fits kind of bio wise, but it's like this one, it's we've we've got to ask it. First. Yeah, this determines if we're going to continue this interview or not. <laughs> All right. So we have a question that we ask everybody that comes on the show, whether they have a PhD or not, and it's a really important question. It's near and dear to our hearts, and our question is this: uh, What is your favorite hockey team? <laughs> um. The Sharks. I have no idea. I, I, like, I don't watch hockey. I don't watch hockey at all. I just know that um, I follow the San Francisco Giants. That's my 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 thing is baseball. I'm uh, into perfect. baseball. Okay. So okay. I've been watching some World Series lately. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, so I'm just gonna go with Sharks because they're in the same you know same basic basic vicinity as as my San Francisco Giants. We we'll go San Jose Sharks. All right. That works. That's a solid answer. I think that's the first San Jose Sharks answer we've been given. I, I have no idea if they're even good or who's oh, on yeah, the team. Oh, yeah, they're good. They're okay. good. Okay. Yeah, and they All have right. cool uniforms, arguably some of the coolest uniforms in the league, okay. in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Chicago uniform is pretty cool. Now, get out of here, Marty. Marty's, <laughs> Marty likes the Blackhawks, which is a Chicago team. Mm. And I like the, the team that, you know, Jesus likes, which is the Washington Capitals. Yeesh. So, Okay. Patriotism yeah. and spirituality. <laughs> Let's move on to Matt's Dude, bio. <laughs> Marty always makes fun of me for that because, like, Nash, if you want to get me angry, let's start talking about nationalism. But, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> All right. So back to that question before. Uh, for our listeners who, who maybe have never encountered your work, can you just tell us a little bit about who are you, what do you do, like what's your faith background, those kind of things? Yeah. So um, if I was to tell you my whole story that's long and complicated and uh, i guess the easiest way to tell it would be um 
yeah, maybe I could, maybe I'll tell it in reverse. Um, that, that'll be an interesting thing. Well, so I'm currently um, you know, a, a professor of theology uh, at Quincy University, which is a Catholic Franciscan school in central Illinois. And I've been here for, I think this is my ninth academic year. So quite, quite some time. And, uh, and so I love what I do. Uh, I get to teach theology for a living. My training and background is more specifically in New Testament uh, and early Christianity uh, with sort of a secondary interest in Second Temple Judaism and the Old Testament. So in terms of my scholarship, um, most of my work tends to center on the New Testament. And I did my PhD work at the University of Notre Dame. Um, so you're, you're kind of like checking out my story here. So the last, you know, what, like 16 years, 15 years of my life have been as part of Catholic higher education, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm not Catholic, uh, nor have I ever even remotely been uh, close to becoming Catholic. Interesting. Uh, there might have been a, a sense of which whenever I first came to Notre Dame, I kind of wondered, like, I wonder if I'm going to be really challenged in my Protestantism. You know, I, I wonder if this is going to shake me um, because I, you know, I have convictions, but maybe they're wrong. And I, I was ready to revise them if I found otherwise, but I, I wasn't really attracted to Catholicism coming in, but actually nothing in my PhD work um, encouraged me uh, in the in the least uh, that Catholicism um, was uh, true in the in the ultimate sense. Um, you know, um, studying the early Church Fathers, sometimes you'll see that you know the um, uh, Catholic apologists, especially, will be like, "Oh, I was when I studied the early Church Fathers, I read you know all the early Church Fathers to, up to the mid third century, and you know everything probably that's ever been produced is part of Christian literature, and it certainly doesn't, uh, in my judgment, support the uh, the." Catholic narrative. Mm. So, um, yeah, anyway, um, so I'm, I've actually become, I think, deepened in my Protestant convictions. There's a certain irony there, uh, because I've written these books on allegiance uh, and saving allegiance. And um, so, of course, there's um, uh, a certain sector within Protestantism that says, uh, this is just Catholicism. Um, <laughs> I'm not hostile toward Catholicism. I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, and I consider them my full brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't, um, I think, some significant untruths there that are important as well. So, uh, yeah, so moving the narrative back farther, I did my uh, master's work at Regent College in Vancouver, B.C., uh, studying with Gordon Fee and Ian Proven and Rick Watts and uh, other people like that. Uh, and so that's a, a trans-denominational se- seminary. People ordain into Anglicanism or into the Reformed tradition or whatever it might be from there. Uh, they don't have a specific denominational affiliation. Um, and before that, I was an electrical engineer. Nice. Um, and uh, yeah, I well, the electrical engineering part actually sandwiched between Notre Dame and Regent in a c- confusing way. But I was an electrical engineer for four years. Um, and then prior to that, did my undergraduate work at Whitworth University in physics. And uh, that's uh, when I first developed an academic interest in um, theology. Going further back, um, I, I have a Christian from the cradle in the sense of, um, you know, my mother, uh, bless her heart, you know, um, teaching me uh, scripture passages and you know, I remember asking Jesus into my heart, if I'm going to use that phrase, uh, when I was four years old. Uh, so I, I remember things going way back when, but we weren't um, we weren't churchgoers until I was in junior high. I was sort of like pietistic, you know, like everyone should have a relationship with Jesus and that's all that really matters kind of thing. But uh, my parents weren't anti-religion, but um, also were not probably um, very interested in institutional Christianity, uh, at least at that phase. So, yeah, anyway— that's that's probably enough of my story to to get us going. Um, so I don't really have a strong denominational background. I'm Protestant by conviction, um, and uh, yeah, but I teach at a Catholic university and love my Catholic brothers and sisters and see them as my full brothers and sisters. 
Perfect. That's awesome. I love that story. It's it's so cool. Um, I was just reading uh, recently. I don't know if you've heard of Sarah Bessie, but she has a new book out, and she was talking about a really interesting experience that she had, where she got to like meet the Pope and stuff. But she was really nervous at first because she didn't know like. Are, is Catholicism cool? Is it not? Whatever. And she was pleasantly surprised. And so that's a cool thing. Um, her new book is worth checking out. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Sarah Bessie's new book. Uh, I know someone else who has a new book, and I think it's you. <laughs> so you, you recently uh, put out a book called Gospel Allegiance, What Faith in Jesus Misses for Salvation in Christ. And if um, correct me if I, if I have this wrong, but this is kind of like a, a follow-up uh, on a more popular level, but also expanded and broadened to a book that you put out a couple years ago called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah, that's a that's a good summary. Um, yeah, so Salvation by Allegiance Alone was like maybe a slightly more academic piece. Um, I tried to write it as accessibly as possible, but the main conversation partners were you know, sort of the academic world. And Gospel Allegiance is... Um, is equally scholarly in the sense that it's informed by the same scholarship, but the conversation partners are more pastoral, and mm-hmm. I try to draw out more pastoral implications. So it's for every Christian, for Christian leaders, for whoever it might be, um, but it's oriented, the conversation is oriented toward pastors. But yeah, what you say is accurate. Um, what would maybe make it different than Salvation by Allegiance alone is that I really do try to go deeper on core issues. So Salvation by Allegiance alone is kind of like a wide-ranging biblical theology of salvation. It's sort of, it's still just a sampler as, you know, those are vast topics, but it it tries to hit the most important um, points within a a biblical theology of salvation. Um, And gospel allegiance really is trying to articulate a core model about faith, works, grace, uh, the gospel, how they all relate to one another properly. So I'm advancing what I call the gospel allegiance model in, Mm. um, in this book. Perfect. Yeah. So like what, I mean, you touched a little bit on who is this for, uh, but I guess my other question would be, why did you write this book? Like, what problem did you see that, that you're trying to solve, if I could put it that way? Yeah, well, the problem is, I think, the largest problem within Christianity today that, that I'm trying to solve. And uh, that problem would be uh, the idea that faith or belief is something mainly cognitive or that it's reducible to trust. So on the one hand, if people you ask people what, what faith is, they, they might um, think, well, it's believing certain things. Um, about God, about the world, about um, about salvation, <clears throat> about Jesus dying for my sins, or they might say it's trusting, you know, that Jesus died for my sins. And without denying either of those two as being significant, um, I, what I want to argue is that the word in Greek, pistis, means something more like allegiance when we're talking about ultimate salvation. And so <clears throat> without realizing the truth of that claim, um, we end up with a vacuous Christianity that can put discipleship by the way, you know, by the wayside, and can say, "Well, the really important thing is making a salvation decision." So that, like, I heard the gospel preached. Somebody said that Jesus died for my sins and that He rose from the dead, and I believed it. And when I believed it, a transaction took place, and I was saved. And that's like the really important thing. Like once that happened, I was like, "In, I'm on my way to heaven. All the good stuff are, is coming my way." And um, and then somebody told me that I like be, like maybe I should get involved in church and I should be a Christian disciple. And I I thought, well, okay, that sounds like maybe a nice thing to do. And they they told me, well, if you love your Lord, you'll do that. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll try to kind of do some of that too. But really, that's like an optional extra. 
Um, my book is attacking that kind of idea directly and saying that, no, that's that's a really problematic way to construct a salvation theology and tries to show that from Scripture. Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's really important because I think, too, from uh, what I've kind of gathered just from my experience and then also from, you know, looking at different, like, Pew research and that kind of stuff, uh, having conversations with people who have uh, quote-unquote walked away from the faith or, or something like that, I've noticed that that the church doesn't quite look like Jesus anymore, and people constantly are calling the church out on that. But also, like you said, discipleship has been sidelined. It's like this optional, uh, like, oh, only like high-level Christians do that bit. It's not that important. And so it seems to me that like a, a big reason why we, we're having these decline in, in numbers, so to speak, uh, is because people aren't leaving um, or denying a, f- a true version of the gospel. They're, they're, they're pushing away something that's been much smaller and truncated that kind of is leaving the church uh, not look so much like Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's it kind does. Of yeah. Some of the experience yeah. I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, even talking with like my students and stuff, I'm a, a full-time uh, student and young adult pastor by vocation. So um, there's some things I've kind of picked up through that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're right that people are walking away from a version of Christianity that is quite frankly, like a truncated gospel. It's a short, it's a short abbreviated gospel that puts the center in the wrong place and is inaccurate. And then it seems nonsensical to people. People are like told like, okay, Jesus died for your sins. Like, just trust that. And then like, that's all God wants from you and he'll be happy. And you're like, okay, I'll like pray this prayer with you. And okay, like I trusted Jesus and now my life doesn't really look any different. And you tell me to be a disciple, but like, didn't the important thing already happen? You told me it did. So yeah, I think that there's some problems there. Sure. Yeah. And you know, uh, Josh and I uh, met because we both worked together at a, a church and uh, that church was very well known for sort of the taking the transactional aspect of salvation and making it, you know, almost reachable for literally anyone to do in a fake way by having a connection card with a box that you could simply check and turn in uh, with your name on it. And then you never had to do anything else. And so in, in, it was phrased that the words were phrased in, I would like more information on becoming a follower of Jesus, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it was communicated as if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, check this box and then we'll can, we'll be in touch with you and we'll get you some resources to continue in your faith. But I, I can, I can honestly say, I mean, I, I, I can count on one hand in the two years, two and a half years I worked there that I saw someone check that box and then actually like continually come back and like make faith important and grow in their faith because the church wasn't doing a very good job discipling in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's, I don't think that's there alone. And I, so I don't think we can, I don't think we can let the church off the hook by saying it's just that one, because I think that that does tend to be, um, you know, it, it makes it an easy way for a report to be ran on Monday morning for all the pastors to look at and say, well, look at the awesome work God's doing through us because seven people checked that box. So now we can mm-hmm. pat ourselves on the back and feel like we've done a good work and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does become very transactional. And, then, and I think that one church does it and they're like, well, we've got to get on the cutting edge and do something like that too. Otherwise we're missing the boat. How do we know who's becoming a follower of Jesus? Well, the fruit, never mind the fruit. <laughs> we just need to know that they, that they've made that choice. So yeah, Josh and I both have uh, worked in a, in a setting mm-hmm. where, 
um, that idea of even just baseline transaction uh, salvation was considered to be legitimate, authentic, saving faith mm-hmm. and understanding of the gospel, even if the message that day was on giving. <laughs> it, yeah. Say, well, I can't believe no one became a follower of Jesus today. And Josh and I would say, we can't. We can't. <laughs> so, because you didn't share the gospel. But yeah. yes. So Perfect. Yeah, sweet. So um, so this might sound like a weird question to ask because we're talking about a truncated gospel. Before, before we jump into some of your content, could you, sh- like, if you had to put the gospel into a sentence, how, what would you say? Well, it could either be one really long sentence, or, or, <laughs> or, um, or I could make it, or I could make it short. I, I think that um, one, one way to summarize it would be to say uh, quickly what it's not. I don't think the yeah. gospel is the gospel is not Jesus died for my sins. Um, mm. That's not the gospel. Um, if we're going to have like a one sentence summary, that that's just not accurate enough. Uh, a more accurate one sentence summary would be that Jesus has become the saving King. Perfect. Thank you. Sweet. Yeah, Jesus is the saving king. Um, that's brilliant. Yeah. And so Kanye, Kanye is on to something. <laughs> Kanye <laughs> is on to something. Yeah, yeah. Jesus yeah, is no, king. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly – he's got the center. Yeah. Uh, that is the center. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So you, you touched there on like – you said, you know, what the gospel is not. And in your book, you actually laid out like three, I think, common things that people – would attribute to and say, oh, this is the gospel. And so I just wanted to run through those three things with you. The, the first thing you said the gospel is not, is not vague Christian activities. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, part of what I mean by that is that, you know, gospel, everything becomes gospel, nothing. And that mm. part of what happens within Christian circles is that um, people know that the gospel is important. Like there's a, like a, like psychological, um, sort of response that you can get from people. Like if you say something about the gospel, everyone's like, the gospel is vital. So whatever you're saying must also be vital. So just by mobilizing the like gospel language rhetorically, um, there's advantages. And so people recognize that. And so then whenever you're teaching about the Bible as a whole, you might be like, well, we're doing the gospel project. Or, um, you know, um, well, it actually doesn't not really like about the gospel per se. Like you're kind of like turning it into a vague Christian language, sort of um, linking it to the whole story. And that's problematic, you know, or um, you might uh, just, you know, kind of tag the word gospel in uh, to to your, your book's title or subtitle as a way of making it seem important or relevant when your book isn't really about the gospel at all. It's about something kind of tangential. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I've seen this happen with a number of books. I don't want to name names in this particular <laughs> case um, as that, that might be uncharitable. But, um, but nevertheless, I think that we see that there are a variety of different kinds of um, you know, uses of gospel in the church in this kind of overly vague general way, where it becomes a cipher for the whole Christian story um, or for making a salvation decision. Uh, and that's actually just kind of distant from what the Bible says more precisely about the gospel. So whenever the gospel becomes everything, it becomes nothing, right? It, it right. just becomes an empty slogan that we use to kind of um, to to try to steal the psychological perks from, right? As we want, we want to get an emotive response from people or we want them even worse. It could be a marketing slogan. You know, people just want to sell more of this or that. So they, they add the word gospel into um, their books um, title in order to, to try to achieve that. 
Mm. And it's, I think it's even become cultural. You yeah. know, when, when you talk about something, you know, just a baseline, you say, oh, well, you know, if, if we're going to talk about the way to handle this, like you've got to you've got to understand this one aspect. This is the gospel behind, you know, playing football or the yeah. gospel behind, you yeah. know, watching this, you know, doing this, whatever the, the theater thing might be or something like, oh, you've mm-hmm. got to. This is the gospel of X, Y, and Z, and so it 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 removes authority, and I think it also it blurs the line, uh, pretty pretty hardcore. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, so the next thing that you say the gospel is not um, might come to a shock as some people, uh, maybe not. I know this is something that I have taught a way long time ago, and have since stopped doing, but you say the gospel is not the Romans road. Yeah. Yes. So the Romans road is, uh, it's probably that, that, that would probably be lingo that resonates more with a slightly older demographic um, than, than, than folks your, your age or, or maybe even my age. Uh, but certainly the people who are in the, you know, the age 50 to 70 kind of crowd, uh, that's really how the gospel was presented for them. Um, and you know, the gospel then is like a, it's sort of like linked to verses in Romans for a convenient way to present the gospel. So, like the idea is this, okay, you need to, we all need to be evangelists and to be sharing the gospel and amen, we do. Um, so, so here, here I'm going to equip you was, was, was how this worked, especially I think in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, I'm going to give you this Romans road so you can lead people with scripture through, uh, the saving message of Jesus. And so then they can make a salvation decision. So, uh, the first thing people need to know is that God is righteous. So you, you find the book in Romans where it talks about, you know, God's righteousness, all right, which there's a number of passages in Romans that would mention God's righteousness. And then next you move to the idea that, you know, um, in light of God's righteousness, all are condemned. So then you go and you find the verse that says, you know, um, all are condemned and fall short of God's glory. Okay. So, uh, so then you then have to say, okay, well, in light of your condemnation, you, you, you need a friend, right? You need some help. You can't earn your salvation. So then you might, you might take them to a verse that, that, talks about the wages of sin being death. Like you're going to die because of this, and you can't earn your salvation. And so then in light of that, you need help. And so then you're going to take them to a verse in Romans that talks about, you know, even whenever we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through through the Son, uh, and so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, channeling a little acts there, I suppose, but we have uh, Romans 10, 9 through 10, right? It talks about believing in the heart that, that Jesus was raised from the dead and confessing him as the Lord. So um, you, you lead them through that to a confession that Jesus is Lord, which, you know, is on the one hand, um, that's true. There is a, you know, that, that, that connects to certain saving facts. Um, the problem is that those facts are kind of bent into a, a distorting framework, um, that is called the gospel when it's actually quite distant from what the Bible says is the gospel. Almost nothing in that, um, in that salvation, that Romans road path that I've just mentioned is actually part of the gospel as the Bible would define it. So when we look at more precise articulations of the gospel in the Bible, um, it's just quite distant from the Romans road. But ironically, for a whole generation, that was the gospel. Mm. Yeah, and I think, too, we see like these kind of uh, other four-point summaries kind of pop up with uh, you know, the likes of uh, like Bill Bright and Billy Graham. And I think at a time, even though uh, like because I think it used to be pretty ef- effective almost, I guess you could say. But I think at, at the time that it, it worked, so to speak, uh, was it a time when like our, our culture was more uh, 
Christianized, I guess. Like the whole idea of Christendom and how Christendom is, you know, now leaving from the culture, which I think might be a good thing, uh, but that's beside the point. Um, where like people already knew these Bible stories, they knew about, you know, all this, this Jesus thing, they knew who God was, and all they needed was just this little push, so to speak, and then, oh, great, I can accept this thing. Um, but it doesn't really, culture doesn't really look like that anymore. And yeah. so not only do I think things like this uh, truncate the gospel and, and individualize the gospel and uh, do a whole slew of other things, um, but also it just, for society today, it's not effective because people have no idea what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. true. Uh, the culture has certainly moved. And on the other hand, we might question whether it was effective in the first place or how sure, effective. Sure, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly people got saved through Romans Road sorts of messages, but it was I, ar- arguably that would only be as they invested themselves in church and, and further discipling as they, as they then lived out that saving message in some sort of authentic way. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And then, um, well, it was, it was definitely, you know, again, going back to Josh and I tend to refer to the place we, we worked at together often. So I apologize for that, but that was something that we, we would, we would offer a class to people at the church, um, on sort of what they called how to be a difference maker, um, in which in the class, they would share a number of different ways to sort of share your faith. And some of it was, so some of it was good. I mean, they talked about like how to share your testimony, how to how to be able to share your testimony, and that that it's important to do so. But then they also shared things like the Romans Road and things, and other sort of very basic things like that. And uh, you know, it it was interesting to me because none of those people had ever actually heard that before. Hmm. Um, but hmm. at the same time, as they would, you know, I I don't know if anyone had any success going out and sharing the Romans Road, but it was always interesting because it was sort of given as like the if you want to share your faith, here are here is one of the three ways to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, here, if you want to share the gospel, this is like here's thirty three percent of the available options <laughs> <laughs> for you to do it. And so, and I and I think that that became it became very stale. I think for people, and you can kind of tell that they okay now go practice and share the Roman drove with this person. Okay, now yeah. you're going to switch, and then you guys are going to share. And it was sort of like yeah, we've already done that. <laughs> <We've> already done <laughs> yeah. That. So I, it was just interesting to me. But. Yeah, it, but I think you're right. It does have the flavor of sort of like a sales pitch, right? Yeah. The way that it's yeah. sort of done and the, the way the logic is pressed, right, is sort of this, um, I'm going to present the gospel to you and like, hey, if you agree to each step along the way and you, you, you kind of accept the logical conclusion, then sort of you're trapped into accepting the gospel in the end or else um, you're, you're logically inconsistent is almost the idea. But it almost entirely misses the effective dimension, right, mm-hmm. of, um, mm. of, um, of, yeah, of, of beyond that, like, why would I commit to Jesus as Lord or, or what does that even mean? Right. But like, I trust that he died for my sins and that he's the Lord of my life. Well, like, w- w- well, because of works being dangerous, Lord of my life is, is, becomes a vague thing too. Right. Yeah. Um, well, what does that mean? It just means I'm trusting that he is indeed the Lord and, um, yeah, and that I trust him as that. Uh, <laughs> as you press for further definition, like, well, it, whatever it means, it doesn't mean work. So stay away from that, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> keep going, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that that ties nicely to the the third thing that you say the gospel is not, which I guess out of all of them would be the most uh, quote unquote controversial, depending on who you're talking to. Although I'm I'm a fan of this this point, but you say the gospel is not our justification by faith. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that would be a little more scholarly way of framing it. That would be more probably most popular in the reform tradition would yep. be to equate, um, yeah, the gospel with justification by faith or or something along the lines of Jesus's righteousness counting in our place. Uh, you know, he gets our sins, we get his righteousness. There's a double exchange. Um, even if those things are true, that doesn't mean that they're the gospel or it's not uh, what the Bible says about the gospel. So I'm trying to be really precise there. And um, I think that what has happened is including justification by faith within the gospel. And, and this is really the legacy of Martin Luther. You know, the Protestant the Protestant tradition is sort of founded on these ideas, that justification by faith is the centerpiece of the gospel. Um, whenever we begin to get more precise, it's actually not true that justification is part of the gospel, nor is faith part of the gospel. Uh, the way that I would articulate it is to say that justification is a benefit of the gospel, or a possible benefit of the gospel, to be even more precise, and that faith is the means or the way we access the gospel, but neither one is actually part of the gospel proper. And when we get that wrong, we end up with some wonky theology. And I think that some of the wonky theology um, that we we have ended up with, in, um, uh, and just to choose a name out there, some of the things that Piper, for instance, John Piper, has, um, some of the things he says about salvation, uh, I would find myself in disagreement with on biblical grounds, I think. Um, and uh, and I think that's a conversation the church needs to have, uh, is that there are there's ways in which Piper is getting the gospel wrong. John MacArthur is getting the gospel wrong. R.C. Sproul is getting the gospel wrong. Yeah, and I mean, these are people who have written books on the gospel, and I think on, on on a biblical, from a biblical standpoint, we can show that some of the things they're saying are demonstrably wrong um, because they've confused things that are closely related to the gospel with the gospel itself, and some some problems flow into their theology from that. Yeah. Do you think uh, so? Marty and I were chatting about that this idea before um, we brought you in here on on Skype, and we were kind of talking about how like the whole thing you know, that was driving Martin Luther was this idea that like he was terrified that he wasn't saved, you know, whatever that meant. Uh, he, he couldn't figure it out. He was freaking out. And so do you think his like fear in that kind of drove him to this more justification by faith type thing? You know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, it seems yes. like they go hand in hand to me and that we're still stuck on the same problem that Martin Luther was having, that we're so afraid that we're going to go to hell um, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. there's a, certainly a personal framework and a personal existential crisis framework that is um, part of the Protestant heritage from the beginning, right, that tends to move faith in more like personal existential crisis sort of directions so that, yeah, w we tend to then like default into modes of thinking about faith that um, that have to do with trust in the face of like crisis or evidence, um, but meanwhile I'm going to trust anyway, right? So that like okay, on the one hand, this could get mobilized in today's culture like problematically, I would argue by okay, here we have on the one hand the narrative of science and uh, science is so successful and it's it's amazing and it's wonderful, and on the other hand we have the narrative of Christianity and um, how the two meet. I'm not sure somebody's going to say, but uh, the the person who's wanting to be a devout 
Christian is going to say, well, I, I, I'm just going to try to ignore that science evidence, and I'm just going to, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus because I feel like I'm in crisis if I don't, and my world is threatened. So I just ignore that evidence, and I just trust in the face of it because I don't want to go to hell, and because I've seen this work for my family and friends, and they believe Jesus died for their sins. And so if I just believe it too, even though this doesn't make any sense to me, that really actually is what make God, makes God happy. And maybe it makes him even happier the more evidence there is against it. Right. Maybe like the more evidence that's stacked against it and the more I ignore that evidence and just embrace Christianity. Well, maybe that makes God even happier because I'm just trusting him. But the problem with that narrative is it becomes a trust in our own trust. Mm. Right. To a certain degree, like what is it that pleases God? It's the action of trust. And so God's just tickled whenever I trust him. So I better do that. (laughs) And so really uh, it becomes like trust in my trust that Jesus died for my sins, that that alone is effective. And that if I actually accidentally get any works in it, or if I start looking at what the world says and I've compromised in some way, that's a that's an intellectual disaster waiting to happen mm-hmm. uh, for Christians. Um, mm-hmm. be, because either you become a fundamentalist and you bury your head in the sand, uh, <laughs> or or you give it up, right? right. Um, and um, and it, and all of that's predicated, I think, on wrong, wrong, wrong ideas about what the faith is, what the essence of the gospel is, what Christianity even is. Um, and it's frankly, the fruit of that stinks and has been destructive in the church. So yeah, mm-hmm. anyway, um, yeah, I'll let you ask a follow-up question I feel like I kind of, I kind of got up on my podium and started preaching there. No, that's good. And, uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Go Hello. You are listening to the Theology Doesn't Suck podcast. Dude, Marty, no, that's people don't want to hear it that way, man. It has to be, it has to be more enthusiastic, like this. Do you love Theology Doesn't Suck? Have you been listening to this show because you truly believe theology doesn't suck? The, no, dude. What, dude? That's that's like that's it's so nerdy. Like people are like people don't think that's genuine, man. That sounds so weird. Well, it needs to be something like this. It needs to be like. You know, hey guys, like, I don't know if you realize, but we have a patron feed and it's, it's so awesome because like you get a lot of really cool stuff and you just like, you just have to give us some yeah, money. Yeah, but we can't just straight up be like, hey, yo, give us your money. Cause that's like, people don't want to do that either. It's disrespectful to our listeners. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Okay. So how about we do something like this? How about we do like, hey guys, it's Josh and Marty okay. from Theology Doesn't Suck podcast and you know here's the thing we love doing this podcast but you know as you probably know it takes a lot of effort and like we've got an awesome guy behind the scenes named matt who does like all of our awesome editing and all that stuff and you know it takes equipment and time and so like you know one of the things that we love about today's day and age is that there could be people out there that love our show so much that you just want to support us and so Josh, we started this awesome patron feed, and like, Josh, how, how can they find it? Like, what, what kind of stuff should they look oh, for? Well, yeah, and then we, we, well, we could tell them then, like, hey, go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck, and whereas for as little as $1 a month, right, you could become a patron, uh, and we have some different, you know, we could tell them about the different tiers, you know, where, where some tiers gives you access to a, a Facebook group specifically for patrons that allows you to do things like submit questions to be asked on episodes, uh, submit questions for bonus content, which, hey, bonus content is a part of another tier, some bonus episodes that are, you know, close to the public. So we could tell them those kind of things, right? Yeah, and 
And one of the things we could do, which would be really cool, Josh, is like every once in a while, just because we're really good people, we could like send them stuff either digitally or like through actual mail. That's kind of cool. Like, you know, like I play in a band. So like, what if we come up with a CD and like we've got a CD and I just want to send it to oh, them yeah. or something, you know, like, you know, like that's another cool idea. So like, you know, maybe that could be like some of the higher tiers. So like they would, you know, they would never know that something cool was coming, but then like, hey, surprise, this is coming to yeah, you. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And like, we could say like Christmas cards, cute stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'd cute be great. Stuff. How about, yeah. all right, well uh, then how about we just tell people that and uh, yeah, hopefully they go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck and uh, join our, yeah. you know, theology doesn't suck community. I, Josh, I think I think this is a good way for us to do this. So I think, OK, let's record this and wait, dude, I've been recording this whole oh, time. Oh, yeah, me too. Let, oh, all right. How about this? Let's just send this to Matt and uh, we'll just go with it. Yeah. All right. All great. right Thanks, guys. We love you. Back to the show. So just a a follow-up question that came to mind, because so I have uh, some good friends that fall into the Reformed camp. In fact, um, if you were to go way back into the Theology Doesn't Suck archives, you'd actually find that uh, my original co-host, Andy, uh, was super confessionally Reformed, um, like PCA all day kind of dude, Westminster Confessioner bus, like the... um, Oh, what's the worship one called? The uh, regulative principles of worship. Like, that's him. And so we would have these conversations about the gospel. And anytime I got outside of basically penal substitutionary atonement or justification by faith, that was like, whoa, 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 you're distorting the gospel. That's wrong. You can't, you're adding to the gospel. That's just the social gospel. That's just uh, whatever that maybe that's a result of the gospel. But why do you think there's that? Why is that fear there? There seems to be a lot of fear um, that it's like somehow this like heretical idea to suggest the gospel is something, anything different than justification by, by faith. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, and I don't have like a deep ax to grind against the reformed tradition. Oh, sure, I mean, me I, neither. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was trained in it. Um, you know, uh, in my seminary, excuse me, in my initial sort of like experiences, Whitworth uh, University, where I went, to reformed, and you know, Regent College has a pretty strong reformed elements, at least. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that within within there are some spokespeople within that tradition um, that uh, I think do see themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy. And so there, there's maybe a, um, a self-appointed, uh, some of them, um, others, community-appointed dimension to feeling like they have to preserve the truth uh, where it's uh, being eroded. And so uh, they would see justification by faith as being an essential piece of the package there. I would agree justification by faith is true. Absolutely. That doesn't mean it's the, that doesn't mean it's the gospel, right? Um, and, um, and so we, we have to make sure that we don't mix those things up. But, but frankly, I mean, people like Piper and MacArthur, they explicitly say, explicitly say that justification by faith is the center of the gospel. And I would like to say, show me the evidence. Um, show me from Scripture where it says that justification is even part of the gospel. Um, it's it's quite different. Whenever Paul talks about the righteousness of God being revealed, 
for instance, which right for those who aren't scholars like righteousness language, dikaiosune in Greek, is the same language that's in, in play with justification. Justification and righteousness, it's all the same word package in Greek. So when Paul talks about the revelation of the righteousness of God uh, in the gospel, he doesn't say that it is the gospel. He says the gospel reveals it. That's a small difference, but a very important one. The gospel itself is not justification. It reveals our justification as a gospel benefit. And that's quite different because that, that means that justification is not actually interior to the gospel, but it's something that we get whenever we respond positively to the gospel as, as an effect of the gospel, just like we would get sonship or and daughtership or uh, we would get glory or other things that you might list that are benefits that, we, that accrue. But that doesn't mean that it is the gospel or that it means that to respond to the gospel adequately means that we've affirmed justification by faith. Mm. Um, the, the gospel is something different than that. And when we put it inside, some weird things begin to happen. Yeah, and I think one of those weird things uh, that begin to happen is, and this is a, a serious question I have for you. I mean, I know the answer you're going to give, but I, I posed this question to my students the other day, to my high school students, and they looked at me like I was crazy. And then I read to them some quotes from people who say just the opposite. And the question is then, did Jesus preach the gospel? Because there are legitimately people who say, no, Jesus did not preach the gospel. And I say, yeah. oh, well, that's that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because often, yeah, you're right. They've linked it to justification by faith. And, you know, people who, who have that view that Jesus didn't preach the gospel would tend to see that as something that has not yet been revealed by God. Well, it's predicated on Jesus's accomplished work on the cross. You know, so how could Jesus possibly preach the gospel. And then others would say, well, no, he did preach it because he prophetically knew he was going to die. Uh, so he preaches the gospel in the sense that he's preaching his own atonement in advance. I would say you're missing the point, all of it, right? Like that's <laughs> that's not that's not quite what the point is. The point is that the gospel is that Jesus is in the process of becoming king. That's mm. the gospel he's proclaiming, right? So when Jesus goes forth and proclaims, you know, the kingdom of God has drawn near, what he means by the kingdom of God is he means God hasn't been ruling in the way he's going to in the future. Like, God is sovereign, he's always the king, but his kingship, uh, he has deliberately allowed his kingship to be obscured in some way. He's allowing the world to run off the rails, okay? It, it, it would appear that way, at least, and allowing uh, the nations to have their way, to, to allow Israel to experience the consequences of its own folly. But one day, God's going to grab control again, and he's going to do so through his king. And whenever this king comes, this king is going to—this uh, king is going to be a human king. He's going to have to, because uh, that's the only way in which God has ordained to rule creation is through his appointed agents, right? The God wants to rule creation through hu- through humanity, and through humanity as it's—as um, humanity is at its best, mm-hmm. as humanity is fully imaging God, right? That, that image is not occluded, that image is not eclipsed, that image is not clouded in any way, but it's a full image of God. And so here comes Jesus— as the incarnate one, right? Well, that's why that's part of the gospel. Well, that's why incarnation is absolutely essential to the gospel, who takes on human flesh and then uh, follows the path of the cross in his obedience and then is exalted to the right hand of God. So Jesus is actually preaching that one day he will become the exalted king who will rule as that interface between heaven and earth as the fully human one who is fully divine, who then rules on God's behalf. And this is all about to happen. That's what the kingdom of God, that's what Jesus, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Well, how does he know it's drawn near? It's because he's just been anointed as the king, right? Mm-hmm. He's been baptized, and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, which means he's now become the Christ, 
right? Before that point in time, he's like chosen by God and advances the Christ, but that as, that hasn't been historically actualized yet. At his baptism, he becomes the Christ historically, mm. right? And then he is the king, and the rest of the story is about the way in which he arrives at his throne. Like he's chosen as king, but not ruling as king yet because he doesn't have his throne yet. His throne is given to him at, at his ascension. So Jesus is proclaiming that this is all about to take place. Hmm. So Jesus does preach the gospel, and it's the gospel of his own enthronement. Mm. Man, so Kanye West really is on to something. He probably yeah. he needs to know. <laughs> we gotta send him. We gotta send him this episode and get his endorsement. A- absolutely, get him on next week. Yo, yeah. goodness gracious! <laughs> I, I have a copy of Gospel Allegiance. That's I right. will. I'll send it to him. I'll send it to him. I, I actually have a question, kind of going along with that. So. so I'm hearing there's sort of, sort of undertones about this throughout, and you've kind of mentioned this a couple times, Matt, just the the idea that sometimes the term gospel, and we've talked about this, the term gospel is kind of thrown around flippantly. Um, so even within spirituality, even within theology, you'd say, oh, well, and such and such happened. I mean, and that's the gospel, right? And then you move on, and without actually realizing, well, wait a minute, what I'm saying, is it really the gospel? Is it is it not really the gospel? Um, and so as you've been talking in the last couple of minutes, the, the question that's been resonating in my mind, um, which, you know, some people would get thrown out of working in a church for asking this question. Um, and I think some people late, lately, uh, I think of people like Marty Sampson, you know, have, have essentially been asking this question. Uh, and the, I guess the question is, why is the gospel important? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, the gospel is important because it's it's the the proclamation of Jesus, right, uh, and his kingship that is, on the one hand, just the objective truth that he has become the king. Mm-hmm. So, um, w- w- regardless of whether the world at this point in time recognizes him as the king, proclaiming that Jesus has now become the king, right, is on the one hand just an affirmation of the truth of the universe. So we need to, like, help people root their lives in what's true about the universe on the one hand, and as part of that gospel, like, acknowledging that he's become the victorious king, that in 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 dying for your sins and co- taking on human flesh and being raised from the dead, uh, he has resurrection life that he can share with you through that resurrection, right, uh, and that uh, on this path toward which he became king, uh, then he sends the Holy Spirit, right, a- a- after he attains the throne, what's the first thing he does, sends the Holy Spirit, that all of this is what empowers our ongoing allegiance, so that opportunity to acknowledge Jesus' kingship and to turn away from other kinds of claims on our lives that are are ones that are going to be non-fruitful for us, that, because they're not rooted in reality, uh, they're rooted in some sort of idolatry. So on the one hand, our yeah, our eternal salvation is at stake. I, I would be traditionally minded in the sense that, yeah, there's eternal life here. Um, I, we could have a complex conversation about hell and what exactly is intended there, as I, I wouldn't have, you know, totally traditional ideas about that, but certainly would say that God is just and he will punish the wicked, right? And that's not in doubt, and there are eternal consequences to our saving decision or not. All that's at stake. And, um, you know, and but but just for this earthly life, like living in light of the truth um, is one that's going to be a rewarding life, even if it's a life that looks a lot like weakness. Mm. So, you know, we have, to, we have to just get in touch with reality would be kind of what I would say as, as why does the gospel matter? Because it's, it's, it's the truth about the universe, um, the ultimate truth. Yeah, it's, it's, and I try to get my students to see this too. We've been, we've been working through, um, 
a study called Following King Jesus, how to, what is it, how to know, read, live, and show the gospel. And it's yeah, based that, off of the work of Scott McKnight. Yeah, it's, it's the Tara Beth Leach, yep, I think. Yep, that, yep, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, haven't, I haven't been able to work through it, but I've seen it as I, you know, obviously I work um, you closely with Scott in, yeah, in the sense of, yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah. on the same trajectory and he's he's certainly a friend in the field. Absolutely, yeah. And so, like, we're, I'm trying to get, like, answer this question to the students, like, the gospel matters because it's a truth about the world as it is now. It's yeah. not this afterlife insurance policy that you get. Like your life mm-hmm. here and now matters. This earth matters. Our bodies matter. Like mm-hmm. relationships matter. All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason people are asking that question, Marty, why is the gospel important, is it's because they've been giving the truncated version of the gospel. I know we keep coming yeah. back to that, but I genuinely believe this is like, Matt, I think I would agree with you. This is the pervasive, maybe the most important issue, distortion, whatever, within the Christian faith today. And it's causing people to walk away from what they think Christianity is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah. it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, but I think the way that perhaps maybe we can turn onto a positive note, and the way that we kind of, you, well, at least you seek to, to kind of uh, bring a solution to this, is in your book you say, Perhaps we shouldn't be thinking so much about faith, but maybe about allegiance. And it's it's based on this this Greek word pistis. So can you give us the rundown of that? Like what what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah. The word uh, the word pistis is the noun, and the, the verb is pistuo in Greek. And so um, traditionally, these are translated as on the one hand faith and and to believe. Right. So the noun faith, the verb to believe. And that's because partly we don't have a, a, a faith verb in English. Right. We can't faith something. Um, you know, I can't I, I, I can't I faith. You know, that doesn't make sense. Right. I believe we can use. So um, part of it is just um, the limitations of English language have made those the traditional translations. Um, but scholarship over the last um, 40 years has really um, called into question whether or not um, the faith works construct on the one hand is helpful, um, or, or accurate, uh, whether or not we've, we've, we've fully nailed that down. And, uh, the pioneering work of E.P. Sanders, a scholar uh, who wrote a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Um, he really launched, uh, what's, what's called the new perspective on Paul. And within this, uh, conversation about the new perspective on Paul, one of the things that, uh, Sanders pointed out is that Jews certainly seem to believe that, um, doing good works uh, was important, uh, but they had mechanisms of salvation in place, right? That they believed that this was what it meant to be faithful to the covenant. Um, and that if they fall fell short, it wasn't like they were condemned. They didn't have to have perfect obedience to the law in order to experience salvation because they were born within it, uh, the covenant, and because the covenant itself provided for forgiveness of sins. Like if you sin, well, there's the Day of Atonement. There's sacrifices you can bring and so on and so forth. So that they weren't hung up over the idea of, of perfection. So on the one hand, um, maybe some of our ideas about works and how they relate to faith need to change. Uh, but the, the word itself, pistis, um, scholars have, have have shown, and I think some of my work has tried to highlight, that the word means also faithfulness. Uh, and this is actually a common understanding of pistis. It's not rare uh, that it means faithfulness. Um, and so, um, you know, just to if I was to give an example of a place where uh, it means something more like loyalty in Paul's letters, um, we could look at um, uh, one example would be um, 
Titus 2.10, uh, where Paul says that slaves should not steal, but should display all good pistis toward their masters. Mm. Uh, slaves should not steal, but should display all good pistis toward their masters. He's not saying they should display all good trust in their masters or all good faith in their masters in the sense that their masters are worthy of their trust. It means that they should be faithful toward them, that they should show loyalty to them or allegiance, right? So that Paul Paul then says that slaves should display all good loyalty or allegiance or faithfulness or fidelity to their masters, right? And uh, that's the same word pistis that is translated as faith or belief in some other contexts in the New Testament. Another example that would be more pertinent for salvation would be in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.4. Paul says, we boast about your steadfastness and pistis Hmm. in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So we boast about your steadfastness and your pistis because it's equated with steadfastness or is or is paralleled with st- steadfastness. We would expect it to be an external quality that can be displayed that is akin to steadfastness. So we boast about your steadfastness and loyalty uh, or your allegiance and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So Paul's commending the church there for their obedience to Jesus as the Lord and and their steadfastness and their loyalty to him. Uh, as the, the the text goes on there and speaks about the Lord being revealed from heaven, he's going to take vengeance on those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So contextually, obedience to the gospel and pistis are closely aligned. Um, so this would be an example where we see that um, that pistis means loyalty or allegiance and is the saving response to the gospel. When we move into other texts that are more ambivalent, that are uh, more difficult, um, an example would be Romans 1.17, uh, a very famous passage where Paul talks about the gospel, uh, you know, the revealing the righteousness of God, and he says that it is by pistis and for pistis. Um, some, some translations kind of didn't know what to do with that, so they, they sort of made it a rhetorical flourish and said, well, it's by faith from first to last, or something like that. It's all about faith. Whatever, whatever the gospel is, it's all about faith. But really, it, uh, you could do a real careful study of the prepositions Paul uses there, the by uh, faith, for faith, and you can make a strong case that this means something like by loyalty, for loyalty, or by allegiance, for allegiance, so that the righteousness of God that we get <clears throat> that's associated with justification is actually connected to our faithfulness, our fidelity, our loyalty to the Lord Jesus, rather than believing in him as Savior. Mm. Yeah, and I think all of that fits really nicely in kind of what you lay out as like the the purpose of the gospel. And you say, you know, the purpose of the gospel is the obedience of faith, pistis, among all people groups. You know, what what then does the Bible say is the primary purpose of the gospel? The allegiance of the nations to Jesus the King. So it all it all ties in really nicely, but I think you first have to get the Jesus' King bit to see how then pistis and allegiance plays into that because it all kind of fits within that um, I don't want to call it metaphor because I truly believe Jesus is king, and I mean that. But you see what I you see what I'm saying? Like it, yeah. it all kind of works together there. Totally, yeah. And that's why part of part of the work I felt I needed to do beyond salvation by allegiance alone and gospel allegiance was to really hit, drive that home by looking at the gospel. Like in salvation by allegiance alone, I think I, I maybe spent a page or two on the gospel, uh, a couple pages. But in this, I, I spend really three chapters developing, like, what is the gospel? And let's let's demonstrate from Scripture that this is actually the gospel. Let's demonstrate from Scripture that Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Messiah, is consistently put forward as a climactic moment in gospel declarations. Mm-hmm. Let's Let's look at that. And then in light of that, 
good theory about how words mean things suggests that the portion of the available kind of meaning of of the word pistis, uh, it can mean trust, it can mean loyalty, it can mean faithfulness. What part of that word is most likely actualized in context? What's being mobilized? Um, well, all of it is being mobilized on the one hand, if we get into lexical theory, but as that's disambiguated, the, the, the royal context is going to front ideas of loyalty or allegiance. Mm-hmm. That's the argument. So I'm not saying that every time the word pistis appears in the New Testament, it means allegiance. It manifestly does not. I mean, there are places where it, it, a trust is a much better translation, but there are other places where it does certainly mean something like allegiance. And when we look specifically at texts that have to do with ultimate salvation, or a response to the gospel message, it's a holistic response to the whole gospel, uh, which climaxes on Jesus's kingship and is not necessarily just an affirmation that the atonement works or that the atonement is effective or something like that. And that's, <coughs> if I was to, you know, again, where's the problem, especially as that's been articulated in re- Reformed theology, uh, the gospel has really been focused on the atonement. Mm. Without denying the atonement, without suggesting that the atonement isn't part of the gospel or isn't important, uh, that's not where the energy lies. It lies on the enthronement. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the way I quickly summarize for people is that, that the climactic energy of the gospel is enthronement more than atonement. Yeah. And that therefore, pistis, the word faith, aims more at enthronement than at atonement. Mm. Yeah, it's not so much that the—I mean, a common— understanding is that like, oh, the cross is the center of the gospel. You know, that's a nice sounding thing. But then once you get into the weeds of things, you start reading, you're like, wait a minute, perhaps it's not. You know, Jesus's enthronement, like you're saying, the kingship of Jesus is the center of the gospel. And so I I recently came across something and maybe it's uh, silly that I hadn't heard this before, but um, I was reading in a comment section uh, recently, people were talking about like, oh, what, what's a bad sermon you heard recently? <laughs> and somebody said, oh, well, in church today, the pastor preached this message about lordship salvation. He wanted to say that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, and that's the gospel or something like that. And that's so bad, so wrong. I can't believe I go to this church. And like this idea of lordship, like lordship salvation or the lordship gospel or something like that was used as a pejorative. And I didn't know what that was. And so I looked it up. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like what? So right. is that, is that, would this model fit within that? Yeah, camp? absolutely. It does. It's closely related to that. And Lordship Salvation was something that uh, was a term that was coined around uh, some of John MacArthur's work. You know, and on the one hand, I've been critical of MacArthur because um, I think that there's room for him to improve his nuance about what the gospel is, and especially about what faith is and how that interfaces with works. Nevertheless, MacArthur was right on the money to say that, you know, an affirmation of Jesus's lordship is central to the gospel. And in that conversation, he was disputing specifically with advocates of the position that's called free grace. Um, so free grace was a, a model that was developed especially by um, a, a scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary in the 80s, uh, Zane Hodges. And he's the one who argued that really what, what faith means is it means just trusting that Jesus 
died for your sins, and coming to recognize that Jesus is the Savior is really what faith is about, and that it can't involve any submission to his lordship without violating works and grace. Mm, so that's why it's called the free grace position. Um, it's it's never been a position that's been popular amongst scholars, uh, certainly in certain uh, small evangelical quarters. It's got a, a firm purchase even still today. Um, but if there's, I think, one... Uh, yeah, if, if there's something that I hope my book smashes, it would be the free grace movement. Yeah, I absolutely. Think that, <laughs> I, think that, I think that my book shows that the free grace movement is way off course, dramatically off course, um, and shows it from Scripture and shows why, shows why the ways in which um, those who are part of the free grace movement are speaking about the gospel, about faith, about grace, and about works— why all those are problematic, and that and that how all those combined are uh, a distortion that leads people away from the actual gospel of Jesus's kingship. Yeah. So what? Um, I guess this is a more technical question, uh, but then what is the difference then between like uh, the free grace position and the uh, like justification by faith? Because again, like when I speak with my more reformed buddies, works is definitely off the table, and I think you know we. So, like, what's the difference there? What What are they? What's MacArthur yeah, arguing? So, about? the classic reformed position would be that works are mandatory. I'm just John Calvin says it explicitly. Luther says it explicitly. I mean, it's um, so the the classic reformed position is that good works are mandatory, but they're not meritorious. Okay. So that they Got don't. It. Your works don't have; they don't contribute to you earning your salvation in any kind of way. But once salvation is granted by faith alone, once you're justified by faith alone, and that's sort of the cipher for all of salvation within this initial paradigm. Um, well, then after that, then logically, then sanctification can flow. Now, sanctification isn't chronologically separate from from sanctif- from justification technically within Reformed theology. Uh, they both flow out of Christ and out of union with Christ. But there is a distinction that's made between justification and sanctification, and justification then would be um, something that is by faith alone, and then within sanctification, your good works can flow through the Spirit's assistance. Okay. So okay. So justification by faith alone then is um, something that is central to um, the Reformed tradition and central to my own convictions too. Absolutely. Um, but I don't think it's part of the gospel. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And uh, and whenever you make it such, weird things begin to happen. Um, and yeah, I can, I'm I'm happy to talk more about weird things <laughs> that happen. But uh, yeah, no, that it's super interesting. Um, like I, that was helpful for me. Like I've uh, always seen those two come up, and sometimes, if I'm honest, I almost made them synonymous with one another. Um, but I know that there was a difference, and so that was that was helpful um, to break that down. So that was maybe even more just a personal, like I'm being selfish kind of question. <laughs> oh no, no, that's but, okay. Yeah. I mean, if I could speak more specifically to some of the problems that happen, like uh, for instance, absolutely. yeah, John, John Piper, you know, um, in his book, um, what's it called? The future of justification where he and, uh, N.T. Wright had a little dispute, right? That little spat. <clears throat> and Piper was responding to Wright's very strong Royal gospel. I mean, Wright articulates a Royal gospel that I think it's fair to say, um, is congenial to some of the things I'm saying. He doesn't say it in the same way. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Anyway, so uh, Wright responded back eventually to Piper, but um, some of it has to do with how justification properly fits within theology. And I think part of how Piper had responded to Wright was to say that if indeed uh, the gospel's center is Jesus has become the king, then that's not good news because, (laughs) because I'm condemned as a sinner. 
right? Like, how could it be possibly be good news that Jesus has become the king because that doesn't actually do anything for me? It just means I'm under God's wrath. I'm judged, right? Because I'm not righteous. And without without having Christ's own righteousness, then um, then I'm I'm without any hope. Um, well, on the one hand, that's true. But when you make it part of the gospel, what happens is you've mixed up the benefit with the gospel itself. And so within the gospel proper, Jesus' death for our sins is part of the gospel, but our appropriation of it is not part of the gospel. Whether you personally respond to it is your response to the gospel, not the gospel. Mm -hmm. So by locating it within the gospel, what ends up happening is you end up having to trust and trust, right, uh, in order to get justified. And that justification then becomes part of the gospel itself rather than something that flows from the gospel. And there are ways in which that connects to a theology of election, mm-hmm. Um like that you are already chosen in Christ before time began within Reformed theology, and so you're already justified in in the sense of your eternal perspective, right? Even though historically that has to be worked out for you, um, and that justification is actually part of the gospel itself, right? It's what saved you. Um, so th- it's all kind of networked and packaged together in ways that become problematic. But I think on the other end, if you see that, in fact, the gospel is good news for everybody— and that response to it is something that flows from that, and then that, that, that your righteousness flows from response to the gospel rather than being interior to the gospel. It allows you to unhinge election from the gospel in the way that the Reformed tradition um, wants to package. Mm. So, again, this is not a polemic against the Reformed tradition, as I don't sure. think my, my perspective is particularly Arminian or Reformed. Um, it's, it's, it's genuinely an attempt to do something that I, I think that obviously has connections to all that, but as its own system. Sure. Uh, but I think there are some problems within classic Reformed theology that, um, that I hope the model can help deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's good. You touched on, actually, that, that was one of the like three objections, I guess, that come up against um, this like royal gospel proclamation. And another one that you pointed out uh, is the, the different gospel in Galatia. What, can mm. you speak to that? Yeah, that's that would be kind of the classic defense then of justification by faith as interior to the gospel is that, you know, that Paul in Galatians one six through seven uh, warns against you know anyone preaching a different gospel you know let them be anathematized. Um, and you know it says it again if anyone's preaching another gospel and then when you begin to inspect uh, Galatians well justification by faith seems to be the central theological issue that's at stake and so there's then uh, a um, a, a connecting of ideas, then um, one then begins to think, well, what must the gospel be then? Well, it must be justification by faith, since that was the issue that was troubling the Galatians, and uh, that we don't have as clear a statement of Paul, um, of any kind of concern over any of the elements of the royal gospel, those ten elements, right, that I would argue form part of the full gospel. Um, so as part of that, um, I think uh, the response that I would want to give to uh, to this um, objection would be that um, we have to distinguish between gospel benefits and gospel res- and the gospel response and the gospel proper, and that Paul actually uses language in, in some in some flexible ways in Galatians, um, where he talks about the gospel, but he's speaking about the results of the gospel. Um, technically, this is co- what linguists call metonymy, um, where you you speak about a result to actually talk about something proper. Um, like the example I give in the book, that would be um, like if you came over to my house for you know for coffee and I said the pot's on, right? Um, 
like, uh, I'm talking actually about the result. I'm saying, Hey, like we're going to get to drink coffee soon, but I'm talking, (laughs) yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about the pot and the content of the pot, you know, saying the pots on implying that it's filled with coffee. I haven't said anything about coffee, but I've actually talked about the pot as a way of referring to the result and the benefit that we're going to enjoy, right? We're going to enjoy the benefit of coffee. Um, and so Paul speaks about the gospel in similar ways. He does it, for instance, in Galatians 2.8 with the gospel of the foreskin, right? That this is not actually a reference to um, the content of the gospel, but to the result in marking off um, circumcised and uncircumcised. Um, similarly, I would argue that's what's happening here as Paul's speaking about a result of the gospel justification uh, and using uh, his language in a metonymous way uh, to speak about this larger sort of thing. But that doesn't mean the gospel isn't royal. So uh, anyway, I think that what's happened is there's been a confusion uh, because of Paul's somewhat plastic way of speaking about the gospel. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah, it's sort of that's a little more technical discussion, and yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. might need to follow up on it in the book itself to kind of get the nuance of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, the whole point is that we want people to buy your book, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Amen. A- absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, and so I guess um, I have uh, one more objection I want to bring up, and then I, I have a question about the Trinity, and then I guess we'll we'll wrap things up here to be honorable to time, um, unless Marty, you have something else you would like to 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 bring up. But uh, I think another objection that uh, people have brought would be one, again, that you reference in your book, but it's the idea of the thief on the cross. Like, wait a minute. Jesus tells this dude, like, you'll be with me tonight in paradise. How is that allegiance? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it was, it's funny actually, because I, um, I was sharing this material with a friend at a restaurant and that was ex- immediately what he brought up, right? Like, what about the thief on the cross? You know? And, um, <laughs> and I was like, I know I need to handle this in my book then. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that actually when we pay uh, really careful attention to what Jesus says, um, he doesn't tell the thief like, you know, Hey, you know, uh, just trust in me and in my sacrifice for you and you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, uh, the thief actually, um, Jesus doesn't say that the thief, nor does the thief say, I'm trusting only in you. Right. We sort of infer that from the narrative and, and that might be a fair enough infer, you know, inf- inference that, that the thief is somehow trusting that Jesus's accomplished work on the cross, but that's more, more what uh, a narratival reading than it is anything that's actually said. What's actually said by the thief is something very specific. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. So he's actually just acknowledged that Jesus is the coming king. Yeah. When you come into your kingdom, is an affirmation. He's saying, Jesus, one day you're going to rule over me, and when you do, remember me in some way. So he's made a pledge of loyalty or allegiance in a tacit way, right? He's sort of acknowledged, hey, Jesus, you are the future king, and I acknowledge your kingship. So this is a, this is a form of, of loyalty. Right? He hasn't lived a life of loyalty, no, but he, he's confessed loyalty to Jesus, and he expects Jesus to be able to reward him in the coming age. Mm. So um, I think that we can see this as an affirmation of allegiance to Jesus the king. Perfect. Perfect. Sweet. All right. Well, the, the last thing I wanted to, to ask you, um, which is unfortunate because there's so much content in your book. I think, like I said, we could have done like four or five different episodes with you on, on, your, on your book. Um, but you did a really cool thing. It was a brief part of, of the book, but you talked a little bit um, about the gospel and the Trinity. And I think that's important because, at least in my mind, and it, it could just be because I have a poor understanding or something, I think there's some atonement theories that uh, don't really sit right with me because I think it distorts the Trinity to some extent. 
And so I think you did a, a healthy job, a helpful job of speaking about how the Trinity kind of works together through this gospel. Can you just kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So, yeah, if we were, one way of compressing the gospel and sharing it in brief compass would be that it's actually a, a Trinitarian story. It's about the Father sending the long-promised Son, right? Uh, and this long-promised Son takes on human flesh, dies for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and, and is raised on the third day, and then is enthroned at the right hand of God so he can send the Spirit. The Father and the Son can send the Spirit to us. Uh, and so then Jesus will come again to rule. So within that kind of way of compressing um, the story of the gospel, we see the, uh, the the coordinated actions of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Um, that the Father sends the Son, and so that the Father and the Son can send the Spirit. And this is exactly what the heart of Trinitarian theology is, would be to, to see those as uh, the historical those are the historical realizations of eternal relationships, right? That the the Trinity properly understood within classic Christian theology would be eternal ra- uh, relations of begetting and breathing forth, right? That the eternal Father begets the eternal Son, right? Uh, and that they breathe forth the eternal Spirit, uh, and that they're all the three in one God because they share the same substance or essence, but nevertheless, they're all one God. And as as part of that, then we see that that why why is it that Christians have always prized the Trinity as as something that's essential? Well, we see it's because it's actually uh, codified in the gospel. Hmm. If you compromise the Trinity, you've actually compromised the gospel and vice versa, mm-hmm. right? That Trinitarian doctrine is about the Father sending the Son so that they can send the Spirit, and that's actually the that's actually the very story of the gospel. Right, so whenever we say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed at church, the Nicene Creed, especially, right, wants to speak about the relationship between the Father and the Son as homoousios or same substance. Wants to speak about the ways in which they relate to one another. That's really actually um, a more elaborate way of articulating the gospel. Awesome. Yeah, that's so good. Thank you so much for that. I I don't know if you noticed, but Marty and I both popped a, a smirk when you said homoousios. Uh, and this is completely tangential, but uh, the church that we used to work at together, uh, they wanted to add this thing called theological moments into the sermon. And so they'd be like, all right, here's our theological moment for this particular <laughs> series. And uh, Because everything else wasn't theological. <laughs> yeah, nothing else was theology. Gotcha. Um, yeah. But uh, so they did this this thing where they talked about uh, homoousius and, and um, homostasius. And I realized they're both. I think I got the right word. They're both pretty closely connected, but they're not the same. And they were using them backwards. And Uh-oh. so I went. I went to the 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 head my boss, the head pastor, and said, "Hey, look, we're using these backwards. Here's the history. This is the councils because they were they were using them even at the wrong council to tell the story. And so I was like, that's not right. And so he went to the the main guy. Uh, the founding pastor and was like, hey, we're using this wrong. And the guy was like, yeah, but the story's better. So we're just going to tell them this way and they're not going to know any different. So they were using the words incorrectly. And then I went to challenge the founding pastor on it. Like I emailed him like, hey, can we have a conversation about this? Can you help me understand why this, why we're doing it this way? And I got reamed out for it. Like you would not believe um, it was extremely ugly and like I got accused of like going over my boss's head and like how dare you undercut my authority like it was ugly like finger in your face screamed at for this kind for this thing uh, so that's why Marty and I smirked <laughs> but that's completely uh, okay. tangential so maybe uh, 
we'll send them this episode so that they can hear about that. <laughs> yeah, in 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 just just in Christian charity, you're going to send the episode. Just in Christian <laughs> charity, yeah. <laughs> no, sweet, awesome, man. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking your time to, yeah, to chat sure. with us. It's been such a helpful conversation. Um, I mean, I think there's so much more you have to offer. Perhaps uh, if you thought your time with us was worthwhile, <laughs> we could work something out to have you back on in the future. Sure, um, absolutely. Because I really enjoyed our time together. So yeah. uh, as far as things out there that people should go find, I think definitely Gospel Allegiance, uh, What Faith in Jesus Misses for Salvation in Christ, which we'll link in the show notes. We'll also go ahead and link uh, the first book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Um, I think for those of you who are more... Uh, like just want to have all the information you can get reading both of them together was super helpful for me. Um, and I think they will be helpful for you as well. And then also, uh, the on script podcast has been a, a big time favorite, uh, for me. I've been listening to on script for man, a long time now. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I was still listening to it when I worked at the church with Marty, uh, mm-hmm. which was years ago. So, um, is there anywhere else that you would like to point people where they can find you? Uh, I mean, I have, I just have a website or you can connect with me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. So okay. yeah, either one. Um, yeah. Website, MatthewWBates.com. Okay, perfect. I'll be sure to link that as well. Yeah. All right, Matthew. Well, again, All right, guys. Hey, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Marty. Thank you. Yeah. Hey. Great. Have a, have a good one for uh, listeners. As we sign off here, Matt, I have a special sign off. I always say, and it's better than Marty's. My sign off is go yeah. caps. Go Blackhawks. <laughs> Thank you.